Hi, this is Mike Peasley from SoundIron, and I'm uh, talking today with audio director of Gryffindor Studios and director of business uh, development at Alias Software, Dale Crowley. And we're going to talk today about interactive music in games um, and how that ties in with uh, interactive audio in general. Um, something that probably near and dear to both of our hearts uh, since uh, Greg Stevens and I started out in uh, game audio at Crystal Dynamics doing um, games like Tomb Raider, the Tomb Raider series. So uh, let's, uh, how's it going, Dale? It's going great, Mike. Thanks for having me here today. I'm really honored to be part of your podcast. Yeah, we figured we'd uh, start chatting about the things that are that affect uh, our industry, our users, and uh, us, and just the things that, that kind of are interesting to us in general about the audio world. Um, so first, tell me a, a little bit about what you're doing with... Um, is it Elias? I'll trim this. Yeah, Elias. Elias. Yes. Yeah. Which uh, what 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 you guys are doing? Uh, tell me what you guys are doing with uh, Elias Software and how that relates to interactive game audio. Great. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, one other thing that I do, and the way that we met, of course, is uh, I was the founder for Designing Music Now, which is a, a site dedicated to adapt game music, essentially. So composers and um, it's primarily designed for composers who are interested in learning about uh, adaptive game music and other features of, you know, game music as well as interactive music. And we'll include links to all this in the uh, comments below the um, below the, the track in uh, SoundCloud. Great. And so to answer your first question about Elias, um, Elias is a wonderful company. They're actually based in Sweden. Uh, the uh, founder is a composer named Christopher Ng. And the CTO is Philip Benefall. And one of the interesting things about Philip is that he is blind from birth. And so he has incredible hearing, just like super hearing. He's almost like a mastering engineer. And so he's been able to really make the sound quality of Elias, you know, outstanding. And what they did is they created a tool that made adaptive music, uh, I guess, in, in a sense, a lot easier to implement. Uh, and there and there really aren't any tools like it uh, now out there. It's uh, kind of unique in that regard. It's um, a, a tool that allows composers to compose adaptive music fairly quickly and, uh, you know, audio directors and games to implement that into their games fairly easily. Now, does this run on top of uh, the game's audio engine, typically something like WIs or uh, FMOD? That's right. It usually works as a, like a plug-in to those uh, FMOD Wise Fabric. We actually have an actual plugin for Fabric where you can control all of the features of Elias from Fabric and we'll be developing the, the similar functionality for FMOD and Wise. Nice. Um, so how does that, uh, how does the player experience that? Uh, what, what give, give me a scenario where this system really uh, does its magic. Yeah, great question. The um, Typical difference between film and games, of course, is that film is a linear medium and games is a nonlinear medium. So in a film, you know exactly when the bad guy is going to jump out, when the intensity increases, when you know any of the action happens, if there's a love scene or whatever, it's all known in advance. Whereas in a game, that can you the player is the director. So to score a game with you know the that that matches the action of the, the player character is is really you know a complex thing to do and most games uh, you know tend to do a poor job of it 
So they, they will sometimes just play the same loop over and over, no matter what's happening in terms of the action. So let's say, for example, you're, you know, it's a, a space game, you're a, a bounty hunter, and you're searching after, you know, the evil Gothmong. And, you know, you, when you've flown through space for like an hour looking for him, you know, the music could be the same loop over and over. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's the first problem. The second problem is once you've landed on the planet, you're in the techno slums, you're looking for him, you have sort of some search music that you might want to play. And then once you find him, it needs to change to a chase. So the chase theme would begin. And as you get closer and closer to your target, the music might increase in intensity. And if it gets further away, it needs to you know, dial down that intensity. And then finally, when you get into a battle, let's say surrounded by henchmen, then you know, as more and more henchmen come in, the intensity of the battle increases and the music should underscore that. And Elias offers a way to manage all of those things in a fairly, uh, in, in a graphical way, in a, in a, in a straightforward way. Nice. So you would basically get, hook it into uh, base, the, the game I, AI would feed it uh, cues, essentially, let it know the status, however many enemies are near you, right. what your location is. Um, now, is it is it triggering? Uh, in the old days, you would have a MIDI track that would be triggering sound fonts. This is back in PS1, right. PS2 era. Um, mm -hmm. And then it switched to... Uh, more of a need for higher fidelity so they would they would stream red book tracks and first it was stereo and you might be able to if you were lucky be able to overlap maybe two of those so you could crossfade as you move from one area to the next or something happened um maybe we'd even get to play a, a occasional longer streaming sound to kind of, uh, for stingers to try to you know mm -hmm. both hide the transition and kind of punctuate those moments and then later on we start to be able to do multiplex audio where you could have tracks muted and fade them in and out based on action so you might have a bass rhythm and then you'd start building on layers of audio then you might still be able to transition between tracks say if you left an area and went into a different area or an event happened and you were coming out of say a cinematic and you needed a transition so but but all of those methods were constantly sort of changing there was no constant tool set yeah. it was always dependent on the game and the engine Really? Right. They there were either custom engines or things like iMuse or um, uh, I think uh, what is the the direct music the direct music uh, is another example of that. But they were very complex. You almost needed a PhD in order to understand how to use them, and so they died out in in, in you know over time. And what has really nothing ever replaced them uh, until Elias uh, has come along. And Elias does it a little bit differently than those systems. In other words, they they often relied on MIDI. And you know, MIDI is the holy grail, and it's a place where Elias is going. But right now we use uh, pre-rendered audio. So it's audio that's been composed, but laid out in such a way that it makes it uh, easy to have very smooth transitions. So let's say there were 20 levels, 20 levels of intensity. You'd start off with the very base level, would maybe have, let's say it's it's designed in a grid. It looks a little bit like Ableton Live. So if you had eight, let's say six different tracks, you've got your choirs, your strings, your bass, your horns, and so on, divided out into tracks, then each of those tracks would have multiple layers and going in the in the vertical dimension. So as you increase your intensity, you would gradually increase on a track by track basis uh, the various uh, intensity levels of your music. Now you're talking. Um, I mean, basically, the 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 idea behind that is is sort of a um, an encapsulation of all these sort of disparate 
bits and pieces we always had to rely on that were you know constantly evolving and sometimes you'd have a great system that would immediately be discontinued because the uh, you know lead program on the project would just decide that the priority needed to be done elsewhere or we were going to use a different engine for this game or that. Right. Uh, to combine it all into one model allows also composers a bit more certainty on how everything's going to be working in the game. There's not just a guess. You you know exactly what format you're working to. Um, exactly. And it's a tool that composers can understand and don't really have to spend much time learning. Can learn it in, you know, pretty much in, a, in an afternoon, if not less. And because you really, once you've cr created your files, let's say it's 20 levels mm -hmm. of intensity, you basically just comp. So let's say you play the bass one time, you know, don't, don't, da, 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 the next time you play it a different way, a different style, but it's still the bass. And you just do, let's say, four or five different variations. Then for your horns, you'll want to, you know, lay out, it, it would be a submix of all of the horn parts together but just the horns, and then you'd have different variations. And those could be your, your, your harmonies. You could have string harmonies that would be there, and you could even have counter melodies and so on, and played by, let's say, the solo strings or something like that. Are these the modular, drums, or are they continuously playing and muting and unmuting each other? Are they buffering and then playing different modules or little segments, or is this like a, a big multiplex that is just being sort of... I think it's best to think of it as a multiplex so that you'd have each of these tracks and they would they could be muted they could be uh, cross-faded from one to the next but mm -hmm. they're done in a very intelligent way elias has some uh as i mentioned our, our the cto is is, is blind from, mm -hmm. from birth and he developed a system that literally listens to the music so if you have a laid-back bass player for example and you've told it to switch on bar one beat uh, bar four beat one it will actually listen and it will if the, the bass player came in a little bit early it will come in, it, it will make that transition where the bass player actually came in rather than strictly where you told it interesting so that would make it more seamless exactly how do you manage i mean i don't want to get into the technical deep details but how do you manage uh, limitations on bandwidth that a lot of times you're going to run into with with game engines yeah so what's Typical problems in the past with uh, with game engines were running out of voices on on the hardware. Uh, Elias gets around that by virtualizing all of the audio, so it's all done in software, and so you're not really maximizing or you're not uh, limiting the you're not stressing the system in that sense, and it only listens to about 500 milliseconds forward and backwards of any transition that occurs. So you don't have to have it, it, you know even if you had six tracks with you know, all those variations, it might take a lot of uh, RAM, but it, I mean, a lot of ROM or disk space, but it wouldn't take very much RAM because, you know, you're only reading brief segments of the audio. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's very lightweight. Uh, what 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 would be a good example of a recent game that used this system? So one that I worked on is called Stampede, and it's a virtual reality game and it's a tower defense game. And so what you have is waves and waves of monsters coming at you and you don't know, you know, how those waves are going to swell and how good the player is and how many monsters are going to shoot each time. But so, so the music needs to adapt to the behavior of the, of the game and the action in the game. So in the first layer, in the first wave where it's fairly simple, the monsters are fairly weak, the intensity is fairly low. And then as more and more monsters come at you, then the intensity ratchets up. But then as you shoot them and as you clean them off the off your board, then essentially they the music will ratchet back down to that baseline state. And then, you know, there's 10 different waves. So you the first wave that comes through, you know, might go from intensity one to intensity four. 
the next wave that comes through would go from two to six and then the next one from four to eight. And so, you know, we're ratchet up and down based on what's happening in the game. Nice. Is this the kind of game, or I mean, sorry, uh, is this the kind of tool that, um, that independent smaller developers, uh, can use or are, you know, or is it sort of geared toward, or is it, is it geared toward larger studios? Well, our initial thought was it would be, you know, really well understood by all of the um, indies and they would pick it up and it would go from there. But uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, a large number uh, of our clients are actually AAA uh, clients that really get it and see the benefit. For example, I think I can mention the client. Um, let's not just to be uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be safe. Um, they, they said that they can do they can increase their. Um, or decrease their iterations from you know three per year to three per month using Elias. So when they were using the previous system where they had to code and hard code all of the transitions of the music system, they could literally do three in a month, whereas it took three in a year. And for me, using some of the other sort of systems like Wise and FMOD, uh, I, I tended to, it would take, you know, what it would take several days to accomplish in one of those systems, I could do in, in an hour or less. And, and Elias. So it, it is really great for AAA companies that are looking to, you know, work quickly and, and fast. But we also have a large following of independent developers and people, you know, indie, indie developers all over uh, are really picking up on this and using it because it's very simple to use. And it's also it has a great licensing model for independent developers. It's essentially free. There's no cost to them until the game that they're making with it, in fact, uh, makes money. So if the game generates, you know, $100,000 in revenue, then there's a, they, they pay a one-time fee for it. But there's no risk to an independent developer to use this tool. That's a really good model. I mean, basically, yeah, it, it, yeah I mean, it solves a, a persistent problem, improves uh, an end result. And uh, if, yeah, if I had not made the transition to sample development, I think that I'd, be, to this day, probably be using that very system Uh you know, just because we were always looking for better tools to do what we were doing. Um, kind of an interesting, so you were talking about, um, you know, the, the holy grail for this would be MIDI, the ability yeah. to sequence audio and then trigger essentially samples. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the big question there becomes to get really high quality samples, to get a really fluid um, result, you need a, a pretty good level of of say round robin variation, dynamic layering, all that to 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 make an instrument responsive, and right. so the challenge would be either disc streaming all these samples, or loading blocks of them, essentially like the old old days with sound fonts, but being able to convince your lead programmer to let you reserve I don't know hundred, two hundred, three hundred, five hundred megabytes of RAM for sample content, right, which right. is often a challenge. It really is. And so there are a couple workarounds there. Uh, one is once the music is more or less composed, you would then save a subset of the complete sample library uh, to to disk and just use just draw from that. The ones you and actually problem, use, essentially. That's right. The, you just save the articulations that were used. Now, of course, you lose things like the ability to add different artic articulations. You know, if you wanted to go from uh, legato to staccato in, a, in that particular phrase unless you'd had you know if you if you so essentially that's what you would have to do in order to get it to work in a game scenario and even then you're talking you know some libraries are you know four gigabytes it could be 
maybe two gigabytes or one. So if you're lucky, so the yeah. file size itself in that situation is still a is a limit. But one way around that that we have uh, worked on, and we actually developed something called uh, adaptive cloud music, which is a server-based solution. That of course on the server you can have as much disk space as you need, and you can have all the adaptivity you need, and then you just stream, you know, the amount the, the files that you need to the game uh, as you need them. Of course, the the problem with that is latency, right? So how do you deal with that? Latency is number one. Drop the second outs. problem is what happens when you when you leave Wi-Fi and you go on the bus and you're out in the city. Yeah. Um, and so for that, what we do is we have there's two versions. Uh, there is the cloud version, and then there's also the local version. And the local version uh, could be very small. Essentially, you have the what's on the server, and then what's locally, and it would switch back and forth between them intelligently. If you leave, you know, you go on the bus, it would just play your the local version of the file, which would be, you know, not the full, the full symphony necessarily, or, uh, you know, might be a, a limited version of the music. And then when you're back on Wi-Fi, it would switch to the you know, more adaptive uh, cloud version. And you could also play games with like bit rate you could reduce fidelity when you're over cellular versus wi-fi connections yeah and so the way we do that in uh the new version of elias which is coming out elias 2.0 is we allow for mono aug files and with mono aug you can have let's say 64k mono aug you can get basically with all of the permutations and variations you can get over two million different var variations in about two megabytes of audio so that means it solves that problem that i mentioned early on about flying through space you know when you're, you're when you're in exploration mode walking through the city for a long time you know walking through a forest a lot of games you know you'll be in it for you know hours at a time and it gets really boring when you hear the same loops over and over even yeah. if it's a five minute loop you you begin to notice the same things and so with elias you're able to have all of these variations in fact if you had six tracks with six variations you'd get six to the power of six variations and that's 46,656 variations possible within a very you know within within that track so it would always be different you know you just every minute or so you hit you randomize and it will randomize the the stems nice so i mean i think from um from sample development perspective it's exciting the idea of um of essentially a, a instrument set that that's a little bit more platform independent where you know it can kind of you you develop a a workflow with a certain sound set you can kind of it's essentially portable you can use it live in 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 a way that currently is a little bit difficult you know but this this feels like an emerging kind of capability that you know it could get back to the flexibility of the old days with MIDI and sound fonts, but mm -hmm. with the fidelity and the and the advanced sort of features of of modern sound sound design and and multi sampling mm -hmm. tools, I guess you could say. Yeah, it is a fascinating, fascinating uh, problem, and uh, I guess a very complex one to solve. But once it is, then with MIDI, you can do things like, of course, change tempo. On you know, so as you run faster, or the player velocity could be tied to the velocity of the playback. So, you know, or driving games and things like that, it could be used a lot. Um, you know, even Space Invaders used uh, <laughs> tempo variations as the as the basses started moving faster, the music started moving faster. So in a way, that was very early adaptive music. Um, of course, you can change pitch. You can use all kinds of um, things like uh, uh, sort of uh, music theory. 
to do things uh, with the music at that point. So you can change it from a minor key to a Lydian mode, for example, and change the thing from a dark to a more happy uh, phrase just by changing the bass notes, for example. Things, you know, really the sky's the limit. And it is really the thing that the industry is, I think, asking for is a way to have adaptive music in games uh, and using MIDI and samples of high quality. Yeah, and I think there'd also be a lot of room for music-based games and educational tools that can use um, a lot more sophisticated sort of musical elements than are really feasible now, I guess you could say. You could also get results like, um, you know, classic, you know, uh, rock band style games that actually have, you know, studio quality audio that could be dynamically Mm -hmm. arranged. Right. And where this works actually is with drums, because drums can actually have fairly small samples. They're fairly short. They're fairly, mm-hmm. you know, uh, easy to implement. And there's a, a, a friend of mine who's got a, a company called Intelligent Music Systems, uh, Daniel Brown. And that, that is the system that's actually used in a Crystal Dynamics game in the most recent uh, Tomb Raider. Uh, it's got a lot of press about it. There were talks about it at GDC. And uh, what he has done is he analyzes it's it's composed drum music that he analyzes and then is able to play back via an intensity slider. So it kind of randomizes it. It's kind of generative, but it's based on composed music and it's, and it uses samples. So it takes all the sample data that was used in the composed track and then plays that back for uh, the listener. As you move close, you know, as the battle increases in intensity, the drums get more intense. It's a really cool effect. That And allows randomization not just randomization but sort of improvisation um exactly yeah. yeah and and so we're working with daniel to merge his system with our system and you know that should be that's coming down that we're we're, we're in the works of how how that's going to uh, merge the two systems together and work in a, in a really interesting way that's excellent yeah but it's come a long way and and as we you know sort of delta all these new technologies together um, and things like virtual reality come into play as well. I mean, I guess the ideal is that you're getting toward a point where you have a totally immersive cinematic re- experience with completely real acoustics and and uh, sort of dynamic interactivity on an audio level. I think that that's going to to really change the game in, in in terms of how what role games have in our society. They're not just going to be toys. I mean, they're not toys now, but I mean, I, I think at a certain point, you'd have a pretty significant crossover with the efforts that, say, Hollywood makes to get films out and, and, and game studios. You, you start to see, I think, a blurring of those boundaries. You know, I think there'll be some interesting rough patches of, you know, as we cross into the uncanny valley in, a, in, in certain places. But yeah. Um, yeah. So what I'm actually very interested in besides uh, or in addition to VR is AR. And I think AR with music could go to a whole new level. I mean, imagine rock band where with AR, you could actually see the band in your room <laughs> or on, you know, on the opposite side, you could, you could be the rock band and have a bunch of fans, your virtual fans <laughs> all clapping and cheering you on as you play. Yeah. Yeah. I might make for some uh, really interesting compositional tools and collaborative tools as well. I mean, you could get to the point where bands yep. could practice without being in the same place. And mixing. Right. Yeah. It'd be great. You could see real three-dimensional mixing 
uh, as you're as you're mixing it, you could see it. And I'm a very visual mixer. Mm-hmm. I need things like you know, Isotope to tell me mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm clipping and everything. I mean, I mean, I didn't develop the uh, mastering engineer ears uh, in my in my career. Although, you know, when I can see it in front of me, I, it really helps. And so I think using AR uh, to do that would be really fascinating to increase my mixing capabilities. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, you bring up a good point with, uh, you know, mastering ears. I mean, I think there are so many different ways of manipulating audio and, and conceiving of it um, to make it flow and, and, and um, to accomplish what you're after it. There are, you know, in the end, there is no one right way. Just like we're not seeing consolidation in the doll world the way that I think a lot of people expected we would see because it's such a personal choice mm-hmm. um, that, you know, there's not really even even now after all these years, there's not really a dominant doll anymore. I mean, there might be one based on sales worldwide, but um, mm-hmm. that who my guess would be what? Cubase or Pro Tools or Logic might be duking it out in that realm, but Ableton has exploded. Yeah, I think Pro Tools uh, and Reaper and Reaper is and Apple Studio going to more and more. Yeah, we use Reaper for almost everything at SoundIron now. Yeah, the loudness the, with Reaper with SWS to do all the loudness stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just for everything. The way it, it approaches it from such a um, an intelligent way. It's it's not just as I mean, we essentially have replaced. You know, we still use SoundForge to some degree, but nothing like we used to because so much of what we do is 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 it, it removed problems from the equation rather than having to figure out how to do it in reaper we just don't have to do it anymore like say fading in yeah. things in and out you can just apply a fade setting to a bunch of items and then customize them but it took something that you know at best if you ran it as a batch process using scripting because you couldn't get precise enough just in the built-in tools say to fade something in and out uh tightly you know, in Reaper, you just select all the items and apply the fade and you're already done. Things like, yeah. Re- little things yeah. like that. Yeah, Reaper in the game dev world is taking over. Yeah. Especially in indie and, um, you know, I think it's actually moving into AAA uh, audio teams as well, just for its sheer power of the batch processing that it can do. Yeah, and it's just so easy to work with. It's so flexible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, that... For, for a certain workflow, it's an incredibly powerful tool, but it doesn't replace every other possible tool because there are different ways. FL Studio is extremely useful in how their creative effects work, and mm-hmm. it's really easy to create uh, interesting, unique-sounding, say, soundscapes or atmospheres or uh, grooves or modular pieces of music that you can can sort of divide up it, cause it because of the way that it approaches things from a playlist and sort of uh, clip point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. Ableton's really popular with people, uh, f- you know, for the way it approaches workflows in an entirely different way from every other platform. Then there's uh, Bitwig. Uh, I want to say, yeah, Bitwig is catching on. There, there are just so many DAWs. I think that's the thing is um, there are, you know, for every kind of person, there's a there's a workflow out there for them. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is with SoundIron libraries, which you know we've reviewed uh, rather extensively at uh, Designing Music Now. Uh, just love, love, love all of the stuff that you do. But one of the things in particular, besides the incredible quality, is the fact that you put a lot of sound design patches within your uh, instruments. So with Noah Bells, for example, um, 
or the alto uh, glockenspiel. There's lots of sound design capabilities. It's not just a glockenspiel anymore. You know, you can yeah, do all exactly. sorts of things. And even even your uh, the choirs, like Mercury Boys Choir, all the choirs, you have lots of sound design patches, and that's super useful in video games. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it came in a, in a way it came from video games, or you know, just just you once you had to do so much amp atmospheric soundscape work and 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 so much sound design, say creature sounds, things like that, and and cinematic events, and you're just so used to manipulating sound, it becomes second nature, and it also affects how we look at the instrument. What can we do with it once we've got it in our hands um, that we didn't expect? So it's a, it's a bit, it's, it's a fun part of every library production, you know, as sort of toward the end as we're wrapping it up, then we start to stretch it in different directions, you know, manipulate the actual source material or, um, or create specialized uh, presets that uh, use all the different effects and uh, features that we build into the UI. Right. So you utilize the engine as well as, you know, some pre-designed sound. Exactly. Sound yes. Yeah. So we'll e often each of us will create our own little package of, of, of uh, presets that we can include in the library to, to extend its usability. Because um, yeah. our goal always is that if you buy a sound on library, you should be able to write an entire piece of music with nothing but that library and have it mm -hmm. sound like a full mix. You know, you should be able yeah. to manipulate, you know, we should provide as many tools as we can so that if that was the only library you could ever buy, you could still work with it to, to fill a lot of roles. Absolutely. And I think the other uh, aspect of your libraries that always astound me is just how easy they are to use and the logical setup and the scripting. So it's kind of three things, but, you know, the way that they're, you know, you can do just with the, the ensemble patches, for example. And then, of course, you can keep diving in layer after layer and get more and more articulations and more and more customizations. Yeah, layering is, is such a powerful tool. I mean, I don't think that people perhaps think of it as, 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 as such an important element in it, but you know, you can't record a guitar track with just one guitar track anymore. You know, you really have to think about it in terms of layering. And that's yeah. true for a lot of instruments and sounds to really, you know, you bring up Noah Bell's or uh, Alto Glockenspiel. The coolest things about those libraries, honestly, is how you can layer different articulations, uh, you know, transposing their pitch and applying mm -hmm. different effects, underlaying simple synth waveforms. Uh, and suddenly you end up with, geez, these celestial sounding mm. kind of lush uh, tune, art, you know, tune percussion articulations that aren't really from anywhere you know they don't really right. they're not just you know it's not just an alto glockenspiel anymore it's something completely different yeah plus you've got the arpeggiator which you can start doing rhythmic things and even polyrhythmic things which makes it super awesome yeah yeah exactly and i, yeah, I, I think for yeah. us that's that's always part of it is what can we do that takes it beyond a simple you know sort of recreation of a of a live instrument or just simply another synth. I mean, it's like, how do we combine all these things together? How do we use organic source to create uh, sort of super, sort of supernatural results, I guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing that you do in your libraries, especially the symphonic series, the, um, the horns in the woods, is you've got all these aleatoric things, which make, you know, for, for games, it's like <laughs> the holy, you know, it's just really awesome to have those things because that really makes the, you know, it's not just a horn library anymore. You've got all these incredible runs and aleatoric coolness, which is also true, actually, in the, I think the Glockenspiel has that as well. 
Yeah, and, I think it's got, it's got some uh, glisses. Um, yeah, the glisses. Up yeah. and down, things like that. We're in um, post-production now on a symphonic harp library. Um, and it's got a, a full section of, uh, of glisses as well in different, different keys and pedal positions. Uh, and it's primarily a multi-sample library, but we felt like, you know what? We, so we brought in a, an excellent harpist who was able to perform a lot of different kinds of things. Um, and also show us a lot of techniques that are kind of, that you kind of have to be a harp player to, to sort of appreciate or know, I think. Mm-hmm. They don't, you don't really hear them in, in, um, in symphonic music or in typical pieces where you'd hear the harp. Uh, but, you know, harpists being artists will often improvise and create new sort of techniques and methods and styles to play it more like a lead instrument or as a lead instrument, not just, uh, you know, sort of an accompaniment. So we, we uh, learned a lot of different uh, uh, techniques like, you know, sort of half pedaling to get really sinister string buzzes, especially on the lower mm-hmm. notes. And um, things that, we, you know, they're probably, you know, people have heard of, but like xylophonics where you, you damp the string right at the, uh, right where it, it comes off the bridge. And you can um, kind of create these, well, xylophone-like sounds, I guess, that came from very plucky, plinky kinds of sounds. Different different sort of unusual articulations like that. Um, yeah, I find it a learning process every time I open up one of your libraries because there's things in there, even if when it comes down to articulations, uh, you know, things that maybe I didn't realize a particular instrument could do. You've, you seem to have gotten that sampled and put in the library somewhere. So Yeah, as often as we can. Uh, you know, when we try to, uh, to unpack an instrument, essentially try to figure out what, what is this thing, you know, none of us are really trained in most of the instruments we record. Um, so, you know, we'll work with, with professional players or sometimes it just takes learning it to, you know, learning how to do it yourself. Um, well, and they probably really enjoy that, right? They enjoy, you know, if you just say, you know, go to town, do what, do take your instrument to the next level, do whatever you want yeah. during this aleatoric run. <laughs> they love showing you, yeah. like, just, oh, wait, 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 let me check this. You know, you're at the end of the session, you're already over time. They put, but, but wait, wait, there's one more thing. I want you to see this. And so we often yeah. get to, you know, it's at, at the end of the session, we get to see a lot of cool stuff that, you know, we did not anticipate. And suddenly we got to record it. So it will be interesting. I think, um, that will be also interesting to see how people react to it because we approached it um, from both sides of a sort of controversy, which is how do you approach a, a concert instrument like that, tune percussion uh, or stringed instrument, uh, when you're talking about recording in a hall versus recording in uh, a booth, you know, right. close miking versus far miking, and some people, sw- you know, will only use one and others will only use the other method. So we recorded the harp in two places. First, we recorded it in a, um, a large studio. It's like a 50 by 30 foot room, high ceiling, mm-hmm. uh, wood floors. To give it a nice bright feeling, we recorded it uh, from three positions, basically on the instrument. The, the rear ports, and all of these are stereo positions. The rear ports, right on the soundboard, on the face, and then as from an overhead position, from about six feet, but within a couple of feet of the instrument itself. And then mm-hmm. a mid room and then a far position as well um we're still deciding on exactly which positions to include in the library because it's pretty beefy the amount of yeah, content i can imagine do you and sometimes you include a mix too right like a stereo mix that yeah. is sort of all those mixed down that, that designed you know, just to be really well. easy to use right out of the box that plus hardware uh, it saves you know it, exactly. it saves from popping and scratching that can occur if you've got a large template yeah yeah exactly and um and then we also recorded it in the booth uh we you know where 
it's you know very close very present so mm-hmm. normally you know you might think of a concert harp as this dainty distant kind of thing but that's because it's recorded from far away in a lot of cases whereas right. we wanted to really get the beef and uh and realize how much bass there is in these instruments and how much body and and tone so i think it'll be fun to i mean we'll offer like positions that kind of allow you to get more of a traditional sound but i think ours would probably be the the only one i can think of that will have more of a full-bodied front and center uh, lead instrument kind of quality to it yeah i've been working with uh, instruments enough to tell the difference between a recorded reverb and then a sort of an after the fact even a good impulse response reverb mm-hmm. so i always like the fact that you record them in a room or in the cathedral because that to me just adds incredible realism to that reverb mm-hmm. no matter how good your you know the dry instrument uh is you know after the added reverb after the fact i can almost always uh tell that so how, are you merging the two in some way like it's you the put- same library you just uh, it, the, the question will probably come down to a one of, of ram load so we'll basically decide yeah. whether we're you know we're in the uh, final phase now but whether it's uh you know, you'd have a, uh, a, you know, a room preset and the, you know, the dry preset or, if, you know, because you're going to be able to choose the mics. So the question, will we load all the mics from both locations into one preset? That's a lot of samples to initialize. So even if they're not loaded into RAM initially, you know, even if we right. we purge them, it's still going to take a while for the instrument to wake up once you load it into contact versus subdividing it so that if you want the room sound, you load that room preset. If you want the I mean, it's a room, it's a big room, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a hall per se. Um, and well, some people say about recording in a, in a room is the problem is they can't mix it with other libraries. Mm-hmm. I've never had that problem. I would like, you know, when I mix your libraries with either Spitfire or orchestral tools, they all sit in the mix really well. Uh, that, I mean, it could be me, but I, I really, I think, you know, from a perspective, you know, having that, uh, the, the, the room mix is really, really important. Yeah, because some libraries just send give you the dry, and that that doesn't work as well for me. Yeah, we try as often as we can where it's physically feasible to do both. You know, unless yeah. it's, it's oftentimes though, it's the location that makes the sound. And so you know, for something like our temple drums, there's no point in record. The whole point of that was unique space that we found to record in. You mm-hmm. know, and the and the instruments we gathered together, um, and others. You know, entirely differently, like petroglyph. We had to record that dry up close because these were very, you know, relatively right. small objects and they're not designed as uh, instruments. They're, you know, stone, you know, made of flint and yep. obsidian and, and uh, basalt and different kinds of stone. And uh, so these are big sounds when you mic them closely in a dry space, but not the kind of thing you could bring to a hall and clack around with and get as much of a, a useful set of sounds from it. So yeah, Jason Graves used a lot of those sounds on his Far Cry Primal. Uh, now, I don't know if he used, I think he had his own sounds that he had recorded, but he used those kinds like he re- mm-hmm. re- recorded dirt and stone and those kind of things because it was basically a game that was set back in the petroglyphic age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Paleo. Well, I guess it depends on which there's, there's, you know, there's Paleolithic, there's the Neolithic. If I would have guessed that one set in the Paleolithic, the sort of pre farming phase of human development right um i think there was a bit of a it wasn't perfectly anthropologically matched (laughs) but it was basically stone age Mm -hmm. well i mean there was not one particular point in time different different 
little societies were at different stages and kind of bounced around right. back and forth. Right, right, right. But um, they definitely probably could never have conceived of what it is that you and I are talking about right now. Yep. Just the... So it'll be interesting to, to see where adaptive music goes, both from the tool side, uh, you know, where you and I are concerned and, mm-hmm. and, and from the creative side where people, act, you know, where you're concerned as well, where you, um, you put it together and put it to use in, in actual, you know, functional working music that people can experience. Yeah, and uh, one of the leaders of uh, adaptive music, or one of the foremost pioneers in it, a guy named uh, Guy Whitmore, who works mm-hmm. at uh, PopCap now and has created some really great adaptive music, even using MIDI um, and some of his stuff, where he's created his own sample libraries, essentially because they're, you know, they're, a lot of the sample libraries do not allow you to um, use them in an adaptive way. You know, mm-hmm. it depends on the EULA. But anyway, so he has written an article uh, on our website on designing music now where he goes into, you know, this the need for the composer to sell the concept of adaptive music to, you know, to our clients, to our programmers, to the project leads and so on, because, you know, it, it really makes a huge difference in the game. I mean, for example, if you were watching Star Wars, you wouldn't hit the mute button, you know, you that the Star Wars without music would be just it wouldn't be the same movie and so but a lot of people in games end up turning the music off and it's because it has become repetitive or you know they've just heard the same riff over and over um you know no matter how good it is even if it's recorded at you know uh abbey road by the london symphony orchestra if it's a loop it's going to get boring Mm -hmm. but if you can do it adaptively you know using some of these techniques like elias allows you to do like you can get all these variations these you know tens of thousands of variations based on a small number of tracks just by randomizing them you know doing those kinds of things or you know being able to we we have things like uh, tonal stingers so no matter what underlying harmony is playing it will play a stinger that is melodically in line with it. So, you know, if you're, if you're transition, you know, if you're playing uh, the, if you're at the one chord, then it will play the, you know, the proper melody. If you're at the five chord, it'll play that. If you're at the flat seven, it'll do that. And, you know, so melodically you can have stingers, you know, so let's say the king enters the room at one point, then it would play one stinger. Then if the king enters the room at a different point in the game, then it will play a different stinger appropriate to the underlying score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really important, I think, for composers to understand what adaptive music is. And, you know, there's some good resources out there, certainly some on our site, um, that uh, go into like an overview of the different adaptive music types. And, you know, from there, uh, you can, um, you know, once you've educated or, you know, once composers have educated themselves on how to how to write that music, then I think it's easier to sell. And it becomes a skill that you can then, you know, sell your services as. So once you become an adaptive music composer, then it's something, you know, when you talk to game companies, you can say, well, I've written this adaptive score and, uh, you know, gives you more value as a composer. Absolutely. Uh, one last uh, point on that. Do you think there's a future in adaptive music uh, in terms of uh, popular music, uh, commercial music, uh, music that the average consumer might listen to? It's a great question. And I, I think so, because if you're driving, for example, <laughs> and you know, that's a long drive or a long commute and uh, you know, you'd like to have some variety in that. And certainly that's one possibility. Another would be new age or meditative music. Um, so if you don't, you know, if you, a lot of times you want that to go on for an hour, maybe it's music that uh, you listen to as you go to sleep and you don't want it to be the exact same, same thing over and over. It can provide that variety. 
uh, no matter how good a piece is, and you know, a lot of times I'll listen to music when I'm going to sleep and, you know, I'll get bored. I'll have to move on to the next one. But as, as an adaptive score, you could actually, you know, have all the same variety, like over seven hours of music in a, you know, in a piece that's just two minutes long or something yeah. like that. Start to have your music adapt to the traffic conditions and your speed. Yeah. Okay. And from a live perspective, we had a, a musician uh, contact us that wanted to perform live to adaptive music that was controlled by the crowd. So the crowd could do certain actions that would change the intensity of the music, and then he would improvise over the top of it. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that can be done. Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's gonna be interesting to see how all this evolves. Yeah. Well, and, go ahead. And even for film, you know, for when you're scoring a film, a lot of times the, the scenes will change. And so having it written adaptively allows you to actually score to picture uh, or score to cutscene from your adaptive score by just changing the levels uh, in the tool. So there's a certainly a, a use for it in that in that regard. Yeah, especially with short timelines for production. Mm -hmm. Exactly. An issue. You could basically start your development of your music well before you ever see a, a single scene and then start to move things around without having to re reorchestrate the entire thing. And not to mention stingers, right? Yeah. Even tonal stingers. So all of your melodies could be performed, you know, over there in your stinger tracks. And um, when you, when a certain action happens, the, you know, sword swings or uh, somebody falls off a cliff, you just hit stinger, you know, play stinger and it will uh, record that at that point on the, of, the, of the track. And if that changes, then it's not a total rewrite. Yeah. Well, it's great to talk to you, Dale. Um, I think we've covered a lot of cool ground and uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much. And thanks for all of your incredible work at, at SoundIron. I mean, I, I don't think I could uh, go through a day of composing music without using uh, many of your libraries. <laughs> Good. So. I'm, I'm glad we can uh, we can build tools that, uh, that, that, that do the job for you. That's really what we're about. We're, we're just uh, trying to build the best tools we can. Well, you're certainly doing it. Thank you very much. It was good to talk to you, and uh, we'll, we'll see you all again soon. Thank you. See you soon.